This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. Oftentimes when things go wrong, it's just it was a bad fit. Think about mentors as kind of like a galaxy. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we learned about some tools you can use to choose a research mentor who can support you in grad school and beyond. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 137. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Hello, Daniel. Josh, good evening. A couple of false starts again tonight. We were going to record a little bit earlier when families were busy, and uh, that didn't work out. But here we are. Here we are. My family was at the dog park, and then you were having dinner. I don't know what you were doing, and then... We were having dinner, and you know I'm not great at responding to text messages on impromptu meetings and get-togethers. So if you want me, do not text me. Call me. Probably ignore that too, though. You know, you can text me and I will immediately see it on my phone, my watch, my computer screen. But you, uh, you're a little less tethered to your device, which is probably a good thing. Well, you know, if you and I ever get together again, I am usually the one that makes you put your phone down. So (laughs) that is true. I look forward to that someday in the future. If we are out at the bar, can you even remember the last time we were together in a bar? I do. I distinctly remember. I think this was back in, I'm trying to place the date and time. It had to be before February, February maybe. But I remember we were discussing this strange virus and whether or not it was going to have an impact on our daily lives. (laughs) How little did we know? (laughs) How naive we were back then. We were very naive. Well, speaking of ethanol, did you bring bring something to sample today? I did, but it's the exact same beer I had last week. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, is this finally my week to talk about my beverage of choice? Yep, since I have nothing new, why don't you tell us about what you're drinking, Dan? Okay, so when I was in graduate school and college, and probably a lot of time after that, I was a voracious soda drinker. So I would drink Coca-Cola, Mountain Dew, Pepsi if I was forced to, and then at some point, it must have been in graduate school, I thought, well, this, all that, you know, I got under that anti-sugar bandwagon. This sugar thing can't be good for you. So I actually made the switch to the diet soda, which is like the saccharin or the sucralose or whatever it is. And it didn't taste good, but I kind of got accustomed to drinking that because I really like the bubbly flavor of soda. So you think that's what it was that really drew you to the soda? Was it was that sort of sharpness, that bubbliness, that... Carbonation. I have no idea. I mean, maybe, but but that that was the hardest thing for me to give up was that not the sweetness, but the 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 kind of bubbly effervescent. So fast forward to my expanding understanding of sugar and how even fake sweeteners will cause an insulin response and probably not good for you either. And I tried to wean myself off of soda, which I had been drinking for twenty years, and I discovered the LaCroix of the world, the kind of flavored sodas. And so I bought those for a long time. And I kind of got used to not having the sweetness, just the bubbliness. You're a man ahead of your time, Dan. You know, I think the time frame you're talking about was was before the 
unsweetened carbonated beverage LaCroix phase. I mean, now they're super popular. Right? Oh, no, I, I was way ahead of the Every curve store on it. has You're its own brand right. of, of these, these things. Yeah, and so I was buying those, and a bottle would be a dollar, two dollars, I don't know how much it was, just for this carbonated water. SodaStream came out, and SodaStream, I liked the idea of just making, you know, just carbonating my own water. That seemed reasonable to me. But I hated the notion of having to, like, have a subscription for these little cartridges. So, you know so I'm this, I've about? never had a soda stream. So you put the water and it's got its own little CO2 tank that carbonates the water for you, right? A little tiny CO2 tank and you, you fill the bottle with water and it carbonates it in the bottle for you. But you've got to buy these very expensive little CO2 cartridges. And so I found a cap that screws onto a normal two liter bottle and it hooks up via an adapter to a normal CO2 tank. So I have a five pound CO2 tank that looks like a a slimmed down version of the one in the tissue culture room. You could grow your own uh, cells at your house if you wanted to. If you had an incubator. I could. I really could. I don't know for how long that would last. But anyway, I can can have five pounds of CO2. I fill up the tank for 20 something dollars at the brew store. And it lasts me six or eight months of drinking two liters of carbonated water a day living the dream now do you flavor the water i do not flavor the water typically it's like the black coffee drinker of carbonated water (laughs) it's probably not great to be drinking this much acidified carbonated water either and i'm sure i will have an epiphany later that tells me this is a bad idea but for now it is very affordable i would say there are worse vices to have i'm sure that's true dan was he was a Solid guy, but the carbonated water got him in the end. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. It's like the <laughs> most Ned Flanders uh, vice to have. Oh, too much carbonated water. So maybe from here on out, Dan, we will have, say, the ethanol section. We'll have the carbonated water section. So, Dan, what kind of carbonated water are you drinking this week? Is that still water, Dan? <laughs> no, I'm not an animal, Josh. I don't drink still water. Oh, well, this has been an enjoyable 10-minute segment on carbonated water. I hope... <laughs> should we just call call the show here and move on or should we uh, well see going? you next time josh <laughs> all right well this is not all we have to talk about uh dan but before we jump into our topic of the week we wanted to say a special thank you to our patreon patrons thanks to all of our generous patrons who help support the show and if you would like to become a patron and gain access to our patron only slack channel you can Go to patreon.com slash hellophd or go to our website, hellophd.com and click the become a patron button. Dan, also, we would like to say a special thank you to our good friends at Promega. Promega realizes that lots of us have been stuck at home for, for months now, maybe less so now that folks are starting to go back to the lab. But we know that this extra time at home could be a time to think about some planning and some writing. Promega has you covered there. They have recorded a webinar called Writing About Science, Tips and Tricks for Communicating Your Research. All kinds of tips and strategies for preparing articles for publication in journals and advice for just how to share the story of your research, whether it's in blogs, publications, grants, whatever type of writing you're doing. You can check that webinar out for free. Just go to promega.com slash HelloPhD. All right, Josh. Well, let's get on with the show. I've got the second part of my interview with Andres de los Reyes, where we talk about the early career researchers toolbox. Josh, you'll recall 
Back in episode 135, I interviewed Andres de los Reyes. He is a professor of clinical psychology, and he wrote this great book for PhD students and trainees, early career researchers, Toolbox. And at that time, we talked about what it means to be what he calls an emerging academic. He compares it to this idea of emerging adulthood, where you're taking on all of these new skills and abilities, and it's all happening. It's a, it's a time of rapid transition and rapid learning. Uh, we talked about why it's so hard to learn those skills that you need because people are not really sharing uh, what you need to know while you need to know it. And we talked about why every scientist has this list of hidden failures that actually makes it seem like they have an unattainable position in the world because you never see when they fail, you only see when they succeed. And so I encourage everybody to go back, uh, check out episode 135 if you haven't heard that yet. But his book covers a few sections. And the first one of them is all about mentorship. And so we got, had the time to really dive deep into the idea of what a mentor should be, and how you should how you can know, out of the list of professors at the university you're applying to, this particular person or that particular person are going to be a good mentor for you. That sounds like an extremely important topic. And I'm looking forward to hearing about it. So let's jump in. I am joined today by author and professor Andres de los Reyes. Welcome to the show. Uh, happy to be here. Thanks so much for having me on. I'd love to talk about the the book is organized around these three core questions, these three themes, and I'm going to try to get you to agree to come back to talk about all of them and give them their their due course. But I'll, I'll just go ahead and read them here, and then I'd, I'd like to dive into the first one a little bit. Question number one, and this is something that a, an emerging academic needs to be able to answer by the time they finish their training. Where do you fit within academia, and what burning question drives your work? We're going we're gonna to come back to that in a second. On the path to publishing your work, how do you respond to reviews of your work? And that's really around the peer review, review process. And then finally, how do you connect pieces of your work to build a research program? And that one is totally loaded to <laughs> the, the idea that I need to build a research program, uh, I think, feels scary. It feels true. And, and the book has a lot of advice on that. If we get back to that first question, where do you fit within academia and what burning question drives your work? That is a question that it helps to ask maybe even before you start a graduate program or when should we be answering that? Great question. I, I, I think it should be a question you start asking yourself before you even start. Uh, and, and, and it helps. One way that, that, I, that I've tried to make this question come to life to people is, is to think about mentors as kind of like a galaxy of stars and planets and solar systems that exist within a, a universe of scientific work that's linked to what the mentor does, right? So, you know, all of us, if we're doing this job right, are publishing papers, getting grants, but they, have, they should have some kind of theme connected to each other. You're not doing them all together. You're doing many times in a serial fashion. And they should, they should have some coherent structure to them. If you think about mentors that way, then it's easier to sort of make concrete the secrets to their success. If a mentor is doing it right, the center of their galaxy is a question or a point of curiosity 
that influences the whole of their work. Why do people harm themselves? What's the best way to uh, reduce risk for COVID-19? Good question. So, so, yeah, good question. And, and, and science progresses insofar as, as the people who are tackling suicide and self-injury, tackling uh, the, the, the pandemic, are driven by a core. Beyond that question, then other things flow from that. What's your answer to that question? Why do people harm themselves? What's the answer to the, to the pandemic question? How do we reduce risk for COVID-19? Well, that's kind of like a, a framework, a theoretical framework. The theoretical framework is kind of like a gravitational force that pulls the star into other objects in the system. The planets in that system are kind of like great examples of how you test your framework. And, and that's, the, that's one of the key driving metaphors of the book, because if a mentor is a galaxy and the galaxy is formed of these different components, then a student in that galaxy is kind of one of those solar systems. And so that doesn't mean that, that your job as a student is from the, from the get-go is to build a solar system from scratch and plan it out years in advance. Your mentor didn't do that. <laughs> you know, so, so uh, you know, none of us figured this out for ourselves from, from, from the very beginning, but, but to the degree that at some point, once you've produced enough pieces of work, to the degree that you can find organization in that system, I think then it becomes a little easier to communicate what you do to other people. And and what it implies is that as a student choosing a mentor, choosing to to step into this part of the universe, it's going to influence where I end up in five or 10 or 15 years because I'm being gravitationally pulled by these other related stars in my galaxy. And I'm probably not going to spin fully out of that region of the universe into something totally different. And so if that burning question is boring to me or not something I don't even want to know the answer to, I probably don't want to get into that part of the the universe because I'm going to be rotating around that area and interacting with those other stars and planets. Yeah. So I'm really glad you used the word influence because being embedded in a scholarly galaxy doesn't dictate what you do after, right? So the galaxy you train in is really the place where you learn how to do the science. You learn how to, how to pursue questions. You learn how to build thematic connections among your ideas and the concrete examples of how you pursue those ideas. But then afterwards, if you wind up being a scientist, it's going to be up to you to build your own galaxy and start helping people create solar systems within that galaxy. Is that galaxy going to sit right next to your mentor's galaxy? It might. Might it spin off to another place? That's also possible, too. That, that's the great thing about, about this job is that you just get so much agency to, to do what you want to do. And if you look through the careers of successful researchers, what you'll often find is over time, they started off with their galaxy in one place. And after a while, they hover they hovered to new places. They link up to galaxies that didn't even sit in the same place when they started. It's just a lot of fun. Constant motion. Constant motion. This notion of a burning question 
that maybe my mentor has and that is something that I am trying to develop as an emerging academic for myself, to answer that question for myself. Do you find that that's pretty easy for early academics to know what their burning question is going to be? Or is it a trial and error or some level of mindfulness? How do they find that? It's hard. I tell my students, I didn't really discover my, really hone in on what my question was till I was a few years on the job. Right? I, I didn't have this figured out when I was looking for work. At best, I gave some people an idea of, uh, of, of what I was interested in. And in some ways, I kind of think of these uh, of my work in, in professional development as kind of making it so I reduce the timelines that emerging academics now have to where they come to realize things, the important things, well before I did. You're not recommending waiting. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, recommending, I'm, I'm recommending thinking about this now, but being okay with the idea that it doesn't have to be figured out until almost to the point where you're looking for work. Because here's the, here's the other tough thing about being a grad student or postdoc. You might discover your burning question the day after listening to this podcast. And you might find somebody who does work aligned with that question, maybe the same question. But the degree to which you can pursue ideas and studies linked to that question is partially dependent on you and, and, and very heavily dependent on who trains you. Because, you know, we only get as much leeway to pursue our questions insofar as those who train us allow us to do so. And, and mentors vary considerably on, on, on how much independence they give to stu- students to pursue questions. Uh, some are really hands-on, particularly those who are at the beginning of their careers. You know, they have to build their own agenda. They have to get their, go- their galaxy noticed. And oftentimes, that what that means is that, is that they, they're really looking for students who have burning questions that look very much like theirs. You know, you can contrast that with the opposite end of this continuum. This, this people who are uh, mentors who are more hands-off, usually that's a more experienced mentor, somebody who's been in the field for a long time. They've got nothing left to prove. And those are usually the kinds of mentors who are, who are okay with their students taking risks, with their students pursuing questions that look very different from this. In some, in some respects, the more established investigators might be looking, might be on the lookout for somebody with burning questions that look nothing like theirs because they want to get into that area. And what better way to, to bridge their galaxy with some other galaxy in the universe and to have a student who's, who's interested in building that, uh, that wormhole between those galaxies in the first place. And that segues us beautifully into one of the tools in, in this section, which is the STAR framework. Yeah. And that, this time it's, it's an acronym, not an not a explicit STAR. Can you tell us a little yeah. bit? This, I mean, this is such an important topic. The choice of a mentor can be make or break. We, on the podcast, we have interviewed and talked with so many students for whom the mentor has made them hate science. And it, every time we hear it, it breaks our heart, and we do everything in our power to talk about how to avoid that. You've developed this framework for understanding how this mentor will be on a few key attributes and then thinking about how you as a trainee will interface with that. So if you could just walk us through briefly, and then I encourage people to get the book if you are looking at this process of finding a mentor. Yeah. So the framework describes 
four factors on which mentors can vary considerably. Size. The size factor looks a lot like what we just finished talking about. So, so hands-on mentors, all the way over to hands-off kinds of mentors. The size of a galaxy can oftentimes dictate how much independence a student might have with that working relationship. At no point will you hear from me, more independence is good, less independence is bad, because it really depends on, on your own learning style. If you're the kind of person who can do great science, and it'd be nice if there was somebody looking over your shoulder to make, to make sure things are going, and uh, the, a place where you can readily approach people for questions you might have, like you're the kind of person that doesn't like that kind of uncertainty in your day-to-day work life, then a hands-on mentor is probably going to be right for you. And a hands-off mentor is somebody that you're just not going to gel with because you're just not going to feel like they're available enough. On the opposite end of the extreme, you have you know some uh, people who learn better on their own. They, they still want a mentor around to make sure that, that they don't crash into something, but they also want to get that kind of leeway to let them figure that out for themselves. That's the kind of person that, that might find a hands-on person really stifling and a more hands-off person, somebody that's going to fit more with their place, their place in the universe. So does size in this case refer to the number of students being trained in the lab? Or is it is it something more general? The mentor is just more busy with appointments and positions and writing. They're usually highly correlated. A, a large galaxy can have lots of grad students, lots of postdocs, lots of undergrads, a really busy environment. Some people thrive in those environments. They love them. And some don't. Some just don't find those great places to learn. You know, and, and the size of a galaxy can be quite small where there aren't any postdocs, maybe a handful of grad students. It's kind of like what my environment was like in grad school. I worked with a very senior mentor. But at any, at any one time, they never ha- he never had more than a couple grad students you know, in, in the lab. So it, it, it was a large galaxy. But it functioned kind of in that small space. But the one thing that oftentimes dictates how available a mentor is are the, the, the other things you were talking about. The editorships of the journals, the grant review panels they're involved in, the service commitments they're engaging with, with their university. You know, those are the kinds of things that oftentimes will come along with the size package. And that's the P in the framework is time. You know, all those different components will oftentimes be highly correlated with how much the mentor is available to meet with students, answer their questions, you know, things like that. So we've got size, we've got time. What is A? Area. So we were talking about size of galaxies. Now, size is one component of, of how big a galaxy can be. Area is kind of like the spread of the solar systems in a galaxy. So you're a student in a, in a laboratory. Uh, you're interested in this kind of scholarly process. And there are students either immediately adjacent to you that have questions that look very similar to yours and very similar to the mentors. And there are also, uh, you know, on the opposite end of that continuum, really spread out galaxies. There's a, there's a core question the, the mentor pursues, but they just happen to have a bunch of solar systems scattered all over their galaxy, uh, testing all kinds of different questions that, that are related to the mentor's uh, core question, 
but there's a lot of uh, leeway students have with uh, pursuing adjacent questions in, 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 uh, farther out. In each of these circumstances, a galaxy can produce a great scientist. And it's just a question of figuring out where you fit in that. Do you like being involved in teams where everyone is in it for the, for the same kinds of ends? Alternatively, do you like being in those places where, where questions are just shooting out everywhere? And you like those because they give you excuses to, to, to learn new things that you just don't know. And do I look at the publication history of this lab or this galaxy in order to understand that diversity? How do I find out about the area? Great question. So I think a lot of it has to do with, so when we're looking for grad programs, we're looking for mentors, the process looks so different than any other time you've considered joining something. The process looks very different than the decision-making points you made when you were choosing undergrad institutions. There, you're looking at class size, maybe the prestige of the institution, things like that. And, and those kinds of things usually fall by the wayside when you, go to, when you look for grad school mentors or postdoctoral mentors. There, it's really more, does this person do the kinds of things that I like, that I think I like, I'd like to do? And then above and beyond that, this is kind of, this process, this framework takes that Google stalking that we do to find mentors and figure out what they're all about and focuses your attention as much on the structure of the work as the content of the work. And so maybe, maybe when you create your initial list of mentors, you're, you're all content, you know, do they do stuff that I like? And then once you build up that list of people who potentially overlap with your, with your interests or questions, then the decision-making points are, is this the kind of environment, given the question, is this the kind of environment that I might want to be in, that I might want to train in? And, and that takes just different kinds of thought processes, delving into the, the method sections of the papers and, and, uh, and seeing, you know, are the apparatuses or, or instruments or procedures being done in, in the lab? Those are the kinds of things that I might like. Are the, you know, among, among mentors on my list, can I find structure in their students' work? Do I see some themes that I can connect together? Can I find themes in the mentor's work? Now, can I find them earlier or earlier on in their career? For junior faculty, do I see connections in their work? Because if, if so, then there's a chance that I don't need evidence of a long history of training students to decide whether or not they're, they're right for me. It's looking to see if you can build a story out of the work. Because if you can build that story, then there's a chance that you have, a, have the ability to build a story with, a, with that mentor as well. Yeah, that's so interesting. To, to be able to see the thread running through their research tells you that they have a burning question, that they have a, at least some central organizing principle that has run through their career so far which back to your comment on modeling would be a good thing for me if I want to be a faculty member someday. And I think you do a great job in the book of describing what that committee is going to look for when they are interviewing you to be a faculty member. And I encourage people who are at that stage to pick that up. We have one letter left, R. I don't think we've covered it. S-T-A. Yeah, we haven't. Resources. So mentors and it's important to keep in mind that, that these things are not mutually exclusive for each other. They're highly interdependent. 
beyond all the other kinds of, of, uh, of factors that feel intangible, there are elements embedded in mentors' galaxies that are part and parcel of what, of what they're able to provide the students in the way of instruments to carry out the work in, in, in funding to, uh, to cover their, their training so that they don't have to uh, take on a TA ship or, or some other kind of um, resource to fuel their training. So there's tan- the tangible things that are available to students to pursue their work. Resources are also kind of intangible too. You know, so, so a mentor might not have the apparatus that you're working on or the access to patient populations if you do work in the healthcare space. But they might have trained a bunch of students. They might have this gigantic network of, of former students who you can go to for advice on the next steps in your career. An example from my own work, I still remember the, this, uh, I was in town for an interview, one of my, uh, my job interviews for my first job. And the search committee chair says, hey, look, we're going to do an exit interview tomorrow. I want to see a draft of your startup uh, package, like what you need to start your lab. And we finished that meeting and I say to myself, oh, no. <laughs> Is this on Google somewhere? <laughs> startup draft. So, YouTube has it, I promise you. Big, so my, my big brother, Matthew Nock, who also trained with, 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 with my advisor, is amazing. I mean, I, I, I have a really awesome, I have a really great research dad. I have an awesome research big brother. And I emailed Matt and I said, um, he asked me for a startup list and I don't know how to do that. Help. <laughs> <laughs> we, he emails me almost immediately, sends me a zip folder of the thing that, uh, the, of, of his application package that night. This is how long ago this was. That night, I, we were on the phone at like 10.30 at a Kinko's. <laughs> oh, Kinko's. Uh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and he's walking me through it and just gave me some really great advice. He, he said, you know, when I first applied for the job, I showed Alan my startup package. And first thing Alan said, looked at it over and said, triple it. Triple the number, the, the final number down there, triple it. And, and what Matt learned and what I learned through Matt was this idea that, well, first we get no practice on how to do any of these things before we're asked to do them. We're caught off guard like I was. And within that are a host of other things that often put early career researchers at a significant disadvantage when they go look for jobs. And one of the biggest ones is we don't know our own worth. We just don't know it. And, and we would tend to be conservative, I think, right? Yeah. You're, you're accustomed to yeah. scrimping as a graduate student, making ends meet, uh, doing more with less. You're not going to walk in and demand a few million dollars. Yeah, exactly. And with very few exceptions, you run into circumstances uh, with regards to asking for resources at this point in your career where this is running an assumption that, that nobody's going to make claims that are outlandish. But barring that, the worst people are going to tell you is no. Or, or we can't go that high 
let's see if we can go down a little bit and, and meet each other where we're at. And so following this discussion with Matt, Matt said, look, make your stuff, you know, uh, feel free to use whatever I'm, I'm giving you. And he gave me everything like startup package. You name all the things that, uh, that he sent me with his application stuff and said, you know, keep this to yourself. Don't show anybody else my stuff. But when you finish yours, you know, feel, you know, feel free to pay it forward. And then to this day, I, like the, the packages that I've sent to colleagues, mentees, former students, you, you name it, the package I've always sent people is basically my hack job <laughs> at patterning my, my application materials from former MacArthur fellow. <laughs> yeah, and, and this I think this underscores your point, which is this is not just about the grant funding of this mentor. This is all about the people that you'll be in contact with, the opportunities to maybe review papers that are sent to your mentor, the opportunities to attend meetings. Um, there, there's so much to think about that's outside of just the, the dollars and cents to make sure I can get through that training. Yeah. At the expense of mixing metaphors, this is the other metaphor I'll often use when thinking about men- mentors. So if you think back, arguing with parents, like conflict, like family conflict is a really normative experience. All of us go through it. It takes various shapes and forms. And it's normative, normal for these kinds of arguments to really escalate in intensity in adolescence. The way I kind of think about mentoring is picture yourself like with like one of the last of those like knockdown drag out arguments you had with one or more of your caregivers and you storm out of the room, you run upstairs to your, to your, your bed and you just pop your, your head in a pillow and, and, and maybe this thought crossed your mind. Oh, I wish I could pick my own parents. Now's your chance. <laughs> this That's is it. Exactly what this, what, what, yeah, this is it. Because that, that person, the person who's going to mentor you is going to be the galaxy that you traded your research parent. To a far greater extent than your institutional affiliation during grad school, like like which university actually confers your degree, that person is going to follow you for the duration of, of your existence. They're going to be not just a person you point back to and, and so that that's where I did my training. That person is going to vouch for you, a letter of recommendation. That person is going to be the person that takes the call from the chair of the search committee that said, I, this letter looks great. This person looks like they walk on water. Can you tell me, is there anything we should be paying attention to? Something that, that you either didn't feel comfortable bringing up in the letter or something else you can say about, uh, about them. They're doing all of the official and the unofficial stuff that plays a big role in how you pursue the work and whether you're able to pursue the work. Such, such an important topic. And you provide not only some of these tools like the STAR framework that we're talking about, you, you actually are providing some sample emails that I could send to ask a mentor if they are accepting students. And, and I think that that's what's, you know, I open up this toolbox and instead of having this blank page, like you, like you said, I don't know, I've never filled out an expense request for a new faculty position. I've never requested a mentor and asked them whether they have the money and the time and the resources to take a student. <laughs> and to sit before a blank page is paralyzing. You've got a few sentences that I can fill in some blanks. I can modify it. But I don't have to start from zero. And I think that's what, that's what this book contains. It's full of examples like that. Yeah, I mean, and that also comes from really great mentorship. So at this time of year, we're recording this in very late May. 
mm-hmm. some people have already been accepted to graduate programs and they may have a rotation process when they get there in the fall where they're going to rotate through various mentor labs. Some people maybe haven't applied yet, but they're thinking about it this fall and they need to start identifying these mentor opportunities. So I think this is a great time for them to pick up the book and begin the process of understanding what is their burning question and, and what types of galaxies might they be successful in. And then what I'd love to do is to have you back to talk about the other two sections of the book, one on the peer review process and all of the challenges inherent in that. What do you do when you get a rejection or a, an invitation to revise? And then the last, the last section of the book is about crafting a job talk, which I don't think we've ever talked about on the show but I think it also applies to crafting a talk in general. How do I take what to me as the person who did this research looks like disparate chunks of information and tie them into a theme that an audience can latch onto, tie them into a story. And so that's just to tease what's, what's coming up, but I would love it if you'd be willing to come back. I'd love to come back. The, the job talk piece is, is a lot of fun to talk about in part because the answer to the question, it's when in Rome go look where great stories are told. And it just so happens that great stories are told in film. You are a movie buff. That <laughs> comes across mm-hmm. very clearly in the book. Thank you so much for being here. And we look forward to talking to you again. How can people get in touch with you if they'd like to? And where can they find your book? Sure. Uh, so books available uh, on Amazon, on bookshop.com, Book Depository, Barnes & Noble, or you know, basically any, any place where you can buy books online. And they can feel free to reach me at my email, adlr at umd.edu. And I'm also on Twitter. My handle is, uh, is at jcap, J-C-C-A-P underscore editor. Well, that is excellent. Thanks again for taking the time and stay safe out there. Likewise. Thanks so much for having me on. I greatly enjoyed it. All right, Dan. Thanks for doing that interview. That was a really interesting. I was kind of tripping on that uh, mentor as a galaxy metaphor. That was pretty groovy. Yeah, yeah, we had a, a good time talking about that. He has another metaphor in the book, Josh, and you know, it's one that I knew you'd appreciate, where he describes the mentor-mentee relationship in terms of the Marvel universe. So, as someone who has watched all those movies, I thought this would really appeal to you. So, Dan, honesty time. How many movies from the Marvel Cinematic Universe have you seen? Um. Does Mary Poppins count? <laughs> Mary Poppins was the last Avenger. Give, give me give me examples and I'll tell you. Uh, so we've got... Oh, I've seen a Spider-Man. Isn't there one where he's like upside down? I've seen Batman with George Clooney. So no. And the one with Bruce Willis. So no, he was never Batman. That's DC, not Marvel. Okay. Dang it. And uh, to make this really confusing, the Spider-Man movie you are referencing, while Spider-Man is in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the particular movie you were referencing was actually on a contract with Sony before the uh, contract with Disney. So that one's not technically part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Okay, Josh. Well, (laughs) here's what I know about the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and I think you'll be impressed. In the Early Career Researcher's Toolbox, he describes the story arc of Iron Man, who is apparently a superhero. And there are several movies about Iron Man. Nod your head if any of this is true. That played by Robert Downey Jr. Robert Downey Jr. Um, and what he mentioned, what Dr. Dillis Reyes mentions in the book is that at some point in, in one of the Iron Man movies, this young upstart 
superhero shows up named Spider-Man and you get a little hint of who he is. You don't get his full story. You just kind of get a hint about who he is. And and later, there are entire movies made about who Spider-Man becomes. But he shows up in Iron Man's story timeline as a way of introducing him to the audience. I remember that part of the book, Dan, and what uh, Dr. Dalis race is kind of getting at and paralleling here is in the Marvel cinematic universe. One of the reasons why likely it was so popular and so engaging was you had this series of 23 movies and Dan, even though you are completely unindoctrinated, you could sit down and watch any one of those movies and enjoy it as a standalone uh, piece of work. Right. However, people who really dove into the entire cinematic universe you find that that entire 23 movie um, series really forms uh, a story arc taken together. And part of it is exactly what you mentioned. There may be a character who is the main character of a specific movie, but then you might have five other characters who sort of play bit parts and weave in and out of that slice of one, one specific character's main story. And so you kind of get this sense that there's this bigger thing that's going on that involves lots of people, not just the the one hero or heroine of the movie at hand. Yeah, and if I could tie this back to its source, the reason we're talking about this uh, in terms of mentorship, Dr. Dillis Reyes writes, within the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the relationship between Spider-Man and Iron Man reveals a textbook metaphor for the relationship between an emerging academic and their mentor. Although Spider-Man does not begin his tenure in the Marvel Cinematic Universe with a suite of his own films, he still gets involved in a larger story. Along the way, he gets a lot of help from his mentor, Iron Man, to begin developing the ability to tell his own stories. That's how every emerging academic starts out. That's how all of our research programs emerge. We all begin embedded in our mentor's story. And that was the thing that really stood out to me, Josh. It is hard for me to imagine how, as a new graduate student, I am supposed to hold my place in the universe of science and how I am supposed to come up with a research program, whatever the heck that is. I don't even know how to do a PCR maybe when I get in. Hopefully, hopefully you've done some summer research. But the idea is that you start out your career as a part in an existing story and over time, you earn your right to tell your own story. You earn your right to have your own science, your own research program. And you know, Dan, I'm just thinking about my own experience and, and the very first mentor that, that I had as an undergraduate researcher. And I, I've talked about this on the show before, but in a lot of ways, I would say he was the most influential uh, mentor that I had in my research life, even though maybe maybe because of the fact I was a complete novice and knew nothing at the time when I came across his path. But even though my time working in his lab was much shorter than that of other mentors I had later on during graduate school or postdoc, I can unequivocally say that, that it had the biggest impact on me. And once my time in those labs came to an end, it's not like that mentor suddenly exits your story right? They, they might weave back in and out at various times um, later on when you've grown as a scientist. One of the things that stood out to me that he said that I really agree with is that there's not a one-size-fits-all. It's not like there's a correct size of lab, a correct style of lab. But he, one of the things he mentioned was talking about independence, for example, 
there's not a situation where being in a lab where you're going to be more independent is good or less independent is bad. It really depends on you and depends on what you want from a mentor and what you need at that given time. You may even change over time. And, you know, I really think working with lots of students and observing lots of mentor-mentee matches, some of those matches are good and some of those matches are bad. And oftentimes when things go wrong, it's not that the advisor or the student were objectively bad. It's just it was a bad fit. Now, there are a few mentors out there who are categorically bad <laughs> across the board, um, but a lot of times it really is just um, a, a bad match. I had I had an experience that I remember very distinctly as a new new graduate student doing rotations. Uh, one of my rotations was in a lab that was, I think, more famous. Um, this PI had made some important discoveries maybe 10 or 15 years earlier. And he was now doing a lot of traveling, super nice person, but his lab was run by the lab manager. And I worked under a postdoc at the time and the postdoc was also extraordinarily busy. And so as a new student working in a microscopy lab where I really did not want to break anything, I remember spending a lot of time waiting. Uh, Could you help me with this? Oh yeah, yeah, Uh, I might have time this afternoon. Okay, and I'd wait till the afternoon and the postdoc would still be busy. And, oh, okay, maybe tomorrow. Okay, let's, let's do it tomorrow. And the postdoc would still be busy. And I was, I was new enough that I didn't take the initiative to find somebody else to help me do the things I needed to do. And maybe there wasn't somebody else. But I remember not getting much done in that process because I needed the handholding. I needed the guidance. And that was a lab set up for churning out postdocs who had their own ideas who had their own experience and needed to just have the cover of a famous scientist and contrast that with what I needed as a graduate student, which was a little bit more hands-on training or questions that I could answer with the skills I already had, things like that. So I think it would have been a great lab for me at a different time in my career, but at that moment it was not a good fit and I didn't end up joining that lab. Yeah. I mean, that was great self-reflection of you, Dan, to recognize that. I mean, can you imagine if, and I've seen students make this mistake. Can you imagine if you, at that time, as a first-year grad student, would have said, you know, I feel more comfortable in this one lab, and I think there are some things that aren't ideal, but man, the opportunity to work in this really famous lab where, you know, they're churning out covers of cell like every, you know, every few months. It's tempting. I mean, imagine what your grad school experience might have been like in that environment. Not that it was perfect in the other environment either, but... (laughs) No, no, no. It, it it was not easy no matter what happens. But I think, you know, that wouldn't have been a good training environment for me at that moment. You know, in my experience, Dan, uh, sort of highlights a different aspect of this. And uh, maybe similar to you in grad school when I was doing lab rotations, similar thing. I rotated in a really big, high-profile lab, and it just didn't feel like a good fit for me. And so I ended up joining a lab that was smaller, where I felt more comfortable. I was going to get more hands-on mentorship. But then at the time that I was transitioning to a postdoc lab, that's not necessarily what I wanted anymore. I actually wanted an environment where I could be really independent. I was going to have a lot of freedom to make my own decisions and guide my own experiments and push them in the direction I wanted. And so I sought out a lab of someone who was much more established, was much more open to me carving out my own research ideas. That would have been a terrible, overwhelming fit for me 
as a graduate student, but you know, things can also change as you change as a, as a researcher and advance in your career. Uh, but I think the key is being aware of who you are at that moment and what you need. Yeah, it makes it makes so much sense. And in the book, it is a toolbox. He has worksheets for you to understand both your star preferences and what that mentor can provide. And then a lot of guidance on some of the random issues that you get into in choosing a mentor. So what if you are the first or the last student to go through a lab? That's something that people go through and they have, it has its own considerations. What if you need mentorship from more than one type of mentor? Maybe you have interests in more than one, what he would call a galaxy. Um, I would say that is most everyone who needs that. It's most everyone. That's right. And we've heard that from, from some of our uh, interviews with people who successfully made it through. They found other mentors in addition to their uh, principal investigator. What if you are in a lab that is inhospitable and you need to get out? These are some of the questions that he is talking about in this section, and I think it will ring very true for a lot of listeners. There are very common experiences in graduate school, which is why we have a podcast, because we all go through this. And I think it's going to be a great resource for people trying to think about, I need to choose a mentor, or I'm having issues with my mentor, and I can't figure out why we're not clicking. But maybe going through some of these worksheets, some of these processes, it'll help you understand well, if only I could change the amount of time I had with my mentor, then I would feel better about this relationship. Um, and there are some things you can do about that. So wrapping your arms around it, getting some, some insight into that relationship, uh, the earlier, the better, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. I think we've learned a lot from Dr. Delos Race. And again, um, the book that he wrote is called The Early Career Researcher's Toolbox. And the target audience really is for emerging academics at the the time point of looking for faculty jobs or entering into faculty jobs. But as I hope you've heard through our discussions, there's really a lot of valuable information, no matter what stage of the training you find yourself in. Yeah, never too soon. And, and I don't think ever too late either. All right, Dan. Well, it has been, uh, it's been fun as always to talk to you tonight on Zoom. We did it. We did it. Still got half a glass of carbonated water. I tried to talk you into coming to the studio tonight with your mask on, but we're not we're not there yet. I don't like the look of the trend lines, Josh. Yeah, need those numbers to come down. Now, are we going to institute a phase system for the Hello PhD podcast? If the numbers hit a certain benchmark, we'll move to phase two. You can run my microphone line out through the window and I'll stay outside, but I will be there, <laughs> sort of. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. That's true. You'll be there. And I think I've got like a 12 foot cable i could probably you know you could stand in the front yard and we could record safe distance safe distance so that'll be phase two although we will have to keep it on the weather since you will be outside during that with electronic equipment uh, okay well this is good we'll work this out before the next show all right well if our listeners have a question or any kind of topic idea we would love to hear them you can email us podcast at hellophd.com or send us a tweet at hellophd if you like the show, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We love the feedback, and it helps new listeners find the show. If you'd like to support us, you can become a patron. Just go to our website, hellophd.com, and click the Become a Patron button, or visit patreon.com slash hellophd. We'd appreciate the beer or five-pound carbon dioxide tank money. <laughs> thank you for the ongoing support from our patrons. Yes, thank you very much. And Dan, thanks for uh, recording with me tonight, and we will see everyone next time. 